0: They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com.
1: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat?
0: The Peter Schiff show Today was another typical day in the US stock market with both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq not only finishing positive on the day uh, but each registering new record highs and again as has been typical the Dow Jones uh, did not follow suit Not only did the Dow not make a new record high, it didn't even close positive. The Dow is off about 60 points on the day. In fact, on Friday, the Dow Jones people announced that they were going to be making some substitutions to coincide with the 4-to-1 split from Apple. I talked about that on an earlier podcast. Since the Dow Jones is a price-weighted index and Apple at $500 a share I think was the highest priced stock in the Dow. It had the biggest influence on the Dow. And of course, since Apple has been such a strong performer, it has been powering the Dow. And that's all going to change after the split because it's going to go from the number one weighting to maybe number 16 or 17 or something like that. So the people at Dow Jones want to make sure that they maintain the momentum So what they're doing is they're making some substitutions. So they're kicking out ExxonMobil, Pfizer, and Raytheon. And they're adding Salesforce.com, Amgen, and Honeywell. And they're hoping, I think, that these new uh, additions will provide some extra oomph uh, to the Dow Jones. Now, clearly, they're getting rid of an energy stock, ExxonMobil. Now, that leaves Chevron as the only oil company in the Dow 30. Uh, personally, I take that as a bullish sign uh, for energy stocks. Uh, I think people are underinvested in energy. People really have no idea how much higher oil prices are headed. I think they're headed ultimately a lot higher. And so I think that this is a good contrarian indicator that Dow Jones people think that one oil company is enough. Uh, and so they're getting rid of the weaker of the two, right? They kept Chevron, which has been a stronger stock, which is you know another reason why the Dow Jones is not... Maybe that good a historical benchmark of the performance of the stocks because they constantly change the index. They kick out the weaker performers, uh, so it's more of like a managed fund uh, than than it's just a static index. And so, because things change, and I think that's why they're kicking out Pfizer and replacing it with Amgen because you know Amgen is more biotech, biopharma than straight. Uh, drugs like Pfizer is. So I think they, they look at Amgen as having better growth prospects than Pfizer. Maybe they're making a similar call in the substitution of Honeywell for Raytheon, although that doesn't seem to be as significant a change as, let's see, going from ExxonMobil to Salesforce, because you're going from an old school you know oil and gas company to basically a software, a cloud software seller. In Salesforce. So clearly, that's the one that they really wanted to get in there to help offset uh, the reduction of the influence of Apple. But again, further moving the Dow Jones away from the industrials, you know, towards uh, uh, technology. Although the star of the day in the stock market was Facebook, Facebook was up 3.6%. A new uh, record high in Facebook, we're at 280. Dollars and 82 cents. The news that drove Facebook higher is actually bad news for Main Street once again. uh, That Facebook is going to be adding some new e commerce features on both its main Facebook page and on Instagram, making it easier for Facebook and Instagram users to shop on the Facebook and Instagram apps. Now, initially, you might think, oh, well, is this going to be bad for Amazon, right? They're going to compete with Amazon. Well, Amazon doesn't care. I mean, Amazon shareholders bid up Amazon. It was up another 1.22%, not a new record high for Amazon, but pretty close. I mean, $3,346.49. Now, I don't think Amazon shareholders are worried. The people who should be worried are the mom and pops on Main Street that are just having a harder time competing. Uh, especially in this day of COVID with all the extra restrictions uh, that don't nearly impact the online retailers as much. So this is just more evidence uh, that more of Americans are going to be buying stuff online, whether it's at Amazon or now Facebook or Instagram. And that means fewer Americans are going to be buying stuff uh, from their local uh, stores, which is bad news for these stores Uh, for the communities, for the tax base, and certainly for the people who work there. Again, that is why we continue to see this divergence between what's happening in the real economy on Main Street and what it is happening on Wall Street. You know, more evidence, again, of that came out with some of the numbers that came out today. Consumer confidence for August unexpectedly dropped. They were looking for an improvement over the prior month, which was 92.6. They thought that it would move up to 93. Well, first of all, they downwardly revised the July number from 92.6 to 91.7. So consumers a little bit less confident than was originally thought. But the expectation that they would get more confident in August was completely wrong because confidence tanked down to 84.8, I think that's a new six-year low. So if you think there's a V-shaped recovery, clearly the consumers aren't sensing that because they are less optimistic now than at any point in the last six years. But if you look at the new home sales number, that blew away estimates. In fact, they upwardly revised the June number, which was initially reported as 776,000. They moved that up to 791. And the consensus for July was 774. Instead, we got 901,000. This is the best number for new home sales since 2006. Now, what was happening in 2006? The housing bubble. In fact, 2006 was actually the peak. That's when housing prices actually peaked was 2006, maybe even 2005. 2005, 2006 was when the market peaked. And you had a lot of sales, and 2007 is when the market imploded, and then 2008 is when that implosion uh, resulted in the financial crisis. But you have to go all the way back to the bubble days of that big housing bubble to find a you know a month where we had this many uh, new home sales. Now, is this because the economy is booming? No, again, it's got nothing to do with a booming economy. In fact, one of the reasons that so many new homes are being bought. Is because the economy is so weak that mortgage rates are down at 2.5%. I mean, you can get a 30 year fixed rate conforming loan at 2.5% fixed for 30 years. They are giving people money to buy homes. Because remember, you can still deduct your mortgage interest on a house. I mean, up to a certain amount, but certainly for a conforming uh, mortgage that the government is going to guarantee. Uh, you're going to be able to deduct that and so the net after-tax cost of the money is below two percent that is below even the feds official inflation rate now the actual inflation rate is well north of that but here you could borrow money to buy a house for less than the annual inflation rate that we have now obviously the inflation rate is going to go up a lot over the next 30 years but you could lock in A mortgage of 2.5%, which after tax is less than the current inflation rate, locked in for 30 years. So, this is a great trade. I mean, anybody who is going out and taking out a 30 year fixed rate mortgage at 2.5% is going to make a fortune on the mortgage, right? Because they're going to borrow this money today and they're going to use it to buy a real asset like a house and By the time they finish paying off the lender, the lender is going to get a bunch of worthless paper. You know, so no one is going to make money as a homeowner because in real terms, the homes that you're buying with these 30-year fixed-rate mortgages are going to depreciate. But the money that the lender is loaning you is going to depreciate more. So what you lose as a homeowner, you will more than make up for as a debtor. The real losers are the lenders right? Whoever owns that mortgage. And in which cases it's the bank, because even though the government is guaranteeing that you'll pay the mortgage, if there's hyperinflation, I mean, that guarantee doesn't mean anything because of course you'll pay the mortgage. It's no big deal. It's nothing. The problem is that the mortgage doesn't have any value to the lender, to the bank. See, the government doesn't ensure that. All the government does is ensure that the mortgage will be repaid in dollars. It doesn't ensure anything about those, what those dollars are going to be worth. So what does this mean, right? If, you're going to, if we're going to load up all of American banks with 30-year mortgages at 2.5%, what happens when interest rates eventually go up, which they have to, and all these banks are stuck with these mortgages that barely cover a fraction of the annual inflation rate? I mean, we are setting up our financial system for a complete implosion. The banks are going to fail. Anybody that owns these mortgages, pension plans, endowments, this is going to be a complete disaster. Yes, it's a windfall for the debtor, but it's a disaster for the creditor. And a lot of Americans are creditors that don't even know it, but our whole financial system is going to implode like a house of cards because of these low mortgages. But certainly it's these cheap mortgages that are being subsidized not only by the government because the government guarantees that you'll pay, but by the Federal Reserve because they guarantee that you pay an insanely low interest, people are now taking advantage of that to buy new homes, even though the cost of building new homes is really going up. And the price is at a record high now to buy a new home. And if you look at lumber prices... The cost of building these homes is really going to go up. Plus, a lot of the other supplies are probably in shortage right now due to COVID. So it's costing more and more money to build these homes. But right now, when you can borrow at 2.5% because the economy is so bad, and it's only because the economy is lousy that you can get a mortgage this cheap, which is the only reason that people are able to buy. But what is actually causing them to buy is probably not necessarily the cheap mortgages. That's what enabling them to buy, right? What is causing them to go out and buy is because they want to get the hell out of the city. That's why, because the economy there is so bad, because the crime is so high, because now they can work from home, and so they no longer have to live in the city, and why would they want to with all the crime and all the increasing taxes, and they need more space, They're working from home, and they're living in a two-bedroom, three-bedroom apartment, and they got kids who aren't even going to school who are stuck at home as well. So they got to get out of these cities. They they need more space. Uh, They need a lower cost of living. And so people are now rushing out into the suburbs, and they're bidding up prices. And that's going to continue. And these high-tax states, look, I just read an article today. New Jersey is hiking taxes. Now, it's just on the millionaires. Uh, but it's going to be on everybody else. They're raising the taxes on people with incomes of over a million dollars a year. Uh, And the top rate right now in New Jersey is 8.97%. And so they're going to move it up to 10.75%, almost 11%. But, you know, the problem when these high-tax states raise taxes because they have budget problems that result from too much government spending, every time they raise taxes to try to, you know, plug up that gap, it does nothing to address the underlying problem of -of out-of-control spending. And so when they just raise taxes, each tax hike guarantees that there's another tax hike coming. And so it's like a slow death, right? It's like Chinese water torture. So people are going to wake up, those who already haven't, and they got to get the hell out of there. I mean, even if you can afford the 10.75%, it's only going higher. So what is your breaking point? Is it 12%, 15%, 20%? But the reality is, if you're going to leave eventually because they're going to eventually hit your breaking point, why not leave now? Because the whole thing is inevitable. And in fact, as high taxes chase more people out, the budget problem gets even worse because now the high taxpayers are gone. And so now they're paying nothing. So instead of getting 8.9% of something, they get 10.75% of nothing. And so because so many people leave because the tax hikes, then the ones that are dumb enough to pay have to pick up the slack with an even bigger tax hike in the future. So in order to avoid all that, you might as well get the hell out now. But this is happening in all these cities and all these high tax states. People now realize, hey, wait a minute. My employers are not only saying I can work from home, they are encouraging me to work from home. I mean, that reduces their liability too because you're not coming into an office where you can get COVID or you can infect somebody else with COVID. And so now people are looking all over the country and they're buying houses and they're taking advantage of the 2.5% fixed rate mortgage to buy a property. Even if it means they end up defaulting on the mortgage on their condos in the cities, You know, once you secure your new digs, what difference does it make if you screw up your credit Uh, with a foreclosure on your existing place. And of course, a lot of the people that are living in the cities, they're renting. So it's no big deal. I mean, it's just they pay off their rent and now their landlord is stuck with an empty building and, and, and no tenant. So don't think that this spike in home sales means we got a booming economy. It doesn't. We have a lousy economy. In fact, it's so bad that people are trying to get the hell out of the city to lower their cost of living. And they're doing that by buying homes in the suburbs. And this is what is driving uh, the new home sales. It's the desperation on the part of people in the city trying to get the hell out of Dodge. And the fact that the economy is so lousy, the Fed is able to keep interest rates so low and basically provide a massive subsidy in addition to the government guaranteed loan which is a subsidy in and of itself because it reduces the default risk to the lender so it makes it easier for people to borrow money and now the Fed has made it even cheaper to borrow that money so that is what is behind this diversion so yes consumer confidence is dropping even as they're you know buying more houses and in fact speaking about what's going on on Main Street I saw an article today American Airlines laying off 40,000 people. What a shocker there. I've been talking about the airline industry in particular, about how they are going to be uh, downsizing and laying off more people. Uh, So, you know, all of this stuff being completely ignored uh, by the markets, by the economy. Obviously, these layoffs are probably... uh, weighing down the consumer confidence numbers. And I expect a lot more layoffs in the future. In fact, I'm reading more and more articles now about the permanency of the jobs that have already been lost. I mean, there are a lot of people that think, hey, if we get a COVID cure, a lot of these jobs are going to come back. They're never coming back. These jobs are dead. Even if COVID is cured, they are not going to come back to life. Hey, before I forget too, I want to give a shout out to my son, Spencer. Uh, Spencer is 17 and tomorrow on August 26th is his 18th birthday. So he finally becomes an adult. I mean, once upon a time you needed to be 21 years old to be an adult, but now, based on the amendment that lowered the uh, voting age to 18, 18 is now really the age of majority uh, rather than 21. I mean, personally, I think it should still be 21. I think it was a big mistake to lower uh, the voting age down to 18. I think 18-year-olds are still kids. I think 21 is a much better age to uh, you know, change their legal status to an adult. I mean, the impetus for that move was the Vietnam War and the draft. Now, I was against the draft. I'm still against the draft. I mean, I think armies should be volunteer. And I think the government, if they can't convince people to volunteer to fight, or they can't pay them enough money to get them to, uh, you know, willingly uh, join the army or the armed services, then they better rethink that war. Maybe the war is not just if people aren't willing uh, to fight for their country. I think a just cause, uh, there will be enough volunteers, and if they're not volunteering, you'll be able to pay them, but if you can't do either, then maybe we should have no war and just come up with, with a truce. But we had a, a draft in the Vietnam days. And what the kids were saying was, if you're old enough to fight, you're old enough to vote. And the politicians bought into that and lowered the voting age. And you know, two wrongs don't make a right. And personally, I don't think voting and fighting have anything in common. Because if you're going to say that if you're old enough to fight, then you're old enough to vote, well, then you should also say if you're too old to fight, then you're too old to vote. If the only people that should be allowed to vote are people who are subject to the draft, then why are we allowing older people who are ineligible for military service, why are they allowed to vote, right? So it doesn't even make any sense. But I think that the the voting age should have stayed at 21. Now, you know, what they ended up doing is they ended up raising the drinking age to 21. So what we said is, you know, at 18, you're not mature enough to handle alcohol, but you're mature enough to vote. I'd rather flip it. I say let them drink when they're 18, but don't let them vote until they're 21. In fact, personally, I, I, I think the voting age, I've said this, I think it should be maybe 28 or maybe 30. I mean, at this day and age, I think 21 is too young. I mean, it wasn't too young 200 years ago when 21-year-olds had been married for a few years and had been in the workforce. But when you're talking about kids who don't even graduate from college until their late 20s because they get a master's degree or something, I mean, they've never even been in the real world. Why should they be voting? Uh, But in any event, Spencer is gonna be able to vote. He's turning 18. I just wanted to uh, say happy birthday. I know he listens to my podcast And a lot of you guys have been following him on Twitter. He now has 13,000 Twitter followers. Uh, I know a lot of them obviously are following him because of me, but he has a great uh, Twitter account. Because if you look at the engagement that he has, you look at the number of likes, comments, and retweets, he's killing it on engagement. I mean, as a percentage, he's doing a lot better than I am because I have, you know, now I'm close to 300,000. But If you compare the percentage of my people who like and retweet, I mean, and I have a great engagement rate on my own relative to the average, but he's even better than me. So he's obviously putting out a lot of thoughtful, insightful tweets uh, that are resulting in a lot of people liking and retweeting and commenting on his Twitter page, so it's it's Spencer Schiff, and if you're not now following him, well, follow him for his birthday, which is tomorrow, and we'll see how many uh, new followers he can get. I mean, there's no reason that he can't have a lot more uh, than 13,000, which is not that bad uh, for a 18-year-old, or he will be 18 tomorrow. Also, you know the Jackson Hole Symposium that's sponsored by the Federal Reserve. It's always a big deal because you get the Fed Chairman speaking. This is going to be the first year that it goes virtual. And it's going to be on the 27th and the 28th. The 27th is when Powell is supposed to speak. And the rumors are that he is going to announce some type of significant change in the Fed's policy with respect to inflation. Obviously, what they're going to do is they're going to be opening up the door to more inflation. And of course, that door is open anyway, whether the Fed wants to pretend that they're doing it voluntarily or not, that's what's going to happen. But, you know, the the ridiculous part about the whole argument is that if you read some of this stuff, and I'll speak more about it after we actually hear uh, Powell's talk, but uh, they're saying that the Fed is pointing out the low amount of inflation. And again, they're misdefining it. They're talking about consumer prices. So let's just say consumer prices. But the Fed is saying the reason that consumer prices aren't rising fast enough is because we have a weak economy. And to an extent, that was true in that, you know, initially we had a big collapse in demand and so prices went down. Uh, And as I pointed out in my last podcast, eventually the collapse in supply is going to mean that prices are going to be much higher, even with reduced demand. But the idea that prices coming down when the economy is weak is a bad thing is wrong. It's a good thing. It's better that prices come down because if the economy is weak, if people are losing their jobs or don't have as much money, isn't it helpful that prices come down a bit, that the cost of living comes down? It's like a little crutch. It's like a counterbalance. Yes, the economy is weak, but at least I can buy some stuff for less money than I had to pay when the economy was strong. The Fed is pretending that prices coming down is a bad thing, but- where they really stand logic on their head is the argument that, wait a minute, if a weak economy results in low increases in consumer prices, low inflation, right? Maybe if we can make inflation higher, if we can have rising consumer prices, well, that will cause the economy to get better, which makes no sense whatsoever. Just because a weak economy can cause Lower prices doesn't mean higher prices will cause a strong economy. I mean, that's like saying because when it rains, the sidewalks get wet. If we pour water on the sidewalks, we'll make it rain. Of course, it doesn't work that way. Rain causes wet sidewalks. Not the other way around. You can't make it rain by wetting the sidewalks. But that's what Powell thinks he can do. He thinks by making inflation higher... We can then have a strong economy. I mean, it's completely insane. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how he tries to twist this, uh, this, this, this kind of this nonsense in a way to make it sound like it's actually illogical and makes sense. But I'm going to talk more about it uh, after I actually hear uh, the Fed chairman's uh, Jackson Hole talk. So look out for that on a future podcast. Meanwhile, I want to say a quick word or a few words about Bitcoin, because Bitcoin kind of got into the news again uh, over the last uh, few days or so, because all of a sudden, I forget what day it was, but um, David Portnoy, who I've spoke about on this podcast, Barstool uh, Sports, he's you know the guy that was mainly into sports, but now he's a big day trader, and he's leading a band of merry men on Robinhood, day trading stocks because they always go up. Uh, well, the Winklevoss twins... Uh, we're able to get him to put some money into Bitcoin, and he also put some money into Chainlink, which is a recent high-flying altcoin. And the Bitcoin community, of course, made a big deal about this. Oh, uh, yep, here's another person that's coming in that's buying Bitcoin, and this was all part of the big pump and dump, uh, where you know they were able to uh, you know hitch a ride on gold's wagon and uh, you know get some benefit out of $2,000 gold, and then you had the ad campaign, the big buy from Grayscale, uh, uh, Bitcoin, Ether Trust, all these trusts, uh, big uh, buy on all the networks or all the financial networks, CNBC, Fox, you know, stuff like that. They were running uh, a lot of these ads. So you had all of this pumping going on simultaneously to pump up Bitcoin and some of the other altcoins. And and Dave Portnoy uh, was part of that pump. Well, what happened is he realized pretty quickly, that while he was helping the pump, somebody was doing the dump. And he decided very quickly that he didn't want to be the patsy. He didn't want to be a bag holder. And so he actually made a smart trading decision to cut his losses short and run, right? Cut and run. So he announced on Twitter that he was out on Bitcoin and out on on Chainlink. He took his losses, and he got out and he stepped to the sideline. And ever since that announcement, the price of Bitcoin has in fact gone down. I think he got out at around maybe 11700 11800 He got in around that price and I think rode it up to you know twelve four, wherever it got. But once the momentum broke in a way that he wasn't used to, I guess from the stocks that he was trading, because he said, hey, stocks only go up or always go up, but, but coins don't. Uh, You know, so he's learned his lesson with coins. He still has to learn the lesson with stocks that they don't always go up either. Uh, But he figured it out pretty quickly. And because he sold, he has a much smaller loss now uh, than he would have, at least on paper, had he hodled. Now, of course, the Bitcoin community is making fun of him. Hey, you don't understand. You're just a wimp. You can't handle the declines. All you got to do is hold on uh, and it's going to make a new high. Well, we'll see. I mean, a lot of these Bitcoiners have been conditioned. They think you can buy every dip. Well, i you know, I got to point out, we haven't made a new high in Bitcoin since uh, 2017 when Bitcoin was at 20,000. It's at 11,300 right now. How does anybody know that it's ever going to make a new high? If it hasn't made one yet, how do people know that that wasn't the peak? I mean, there's a good chance that it was. And in fact, until we take it out, it's hard to argue that it wasn't the peak. Just because it had a big run uh, leading up to 2017, it doesn't mean that that run hasn't ended, that that was the speculative blow off top. I mean, we're still nowhere near the level of interest that we had in Bitcoin as we had back then. So I think Portnoy made the smart move to get out. I personally think the next high-profile guy who's going to cut and run is going to be Paul Tudor Jones. People made a big deal about Paul Tudor Jones getting into Bitcoin. Uh, I think he did. I think he looked at it as a trader. He expected it to run with gold. It did initially, but I think if it fails, I think if Bitcoin breaks back below 10,000, uh, you know, I think he's going to get out. I think he's going to take his losses and and, and go someplace else. He'll take his chips off the table. He took a shot he thought, hey, I'm going to bet on this horse. I think it's the fastest horse. Well, it turned out it wasn't. You know, it was, It was. he bet the wrong horse. And I think he'll find that out. So I think that's more bad news coming for crypto. Right now, these guys are in denial. They've got their heads, you know, up their behinds. And they're completely oblivious. You know, they want to make fun of me because I didn't buy it when it was real cheap. Yeah, I know that. Uh, but eventually, I'll be able to make fun of them because they didn't sell it when it was very expensive, right? Because they're going to ride it all down And a lot of these guys, maybe they bought some when it was real cheap, but they averaged up over time. And so eventually, they're going to be way down. Even if they had some coins that they bought cheap, their average price is going to end up being much lower than their cost basis. And they're going to be in losses. But I want to talk a little bit now about politics because yesterday was the first day of the Republican National Convention. And again, I have a lot of mixed feelings about the Republican convention, because there were a lot of really good things that were said at that convention. And I really you know, enjoyed a lot of these speeches that were made. And I agree with a lot of the sentiments that were being expressed. I mean, the one thing that really annoyed me about every single speaker was that everybody went out of their way to say that Donald Trump gave us the greatest economy in the history of America which is a bull-faced lie. And I get it, right? That's what they want to pretend because they want to pretend that we should reelect Trump to go back to the good old days. Except, you know, it's not true. And, you know, it really shows you how long the economy has been lousy. That people have no idea what a good economy actually is like because they haven't experienced one. The idea that the best it's ever been in America was 2019, Right? before COVID. I mean, it wasn't even close. It was simply a bigger bubble than the one that he inherited from Obama. So that part really pissed me off, this you know, continuing to push that false narrative, lying about how great the economy was uh, when it wasn't. And yes, I know there were some good things that Donald Trump did, but as far as I'm concerned, they're overshadowed by the bad things, by the increasing the size of government. By the massive deficits, by allowing government to get bigger, deficits to get bigger, and then for beating up the Fed and and pushing them to cut rates and print more money, you know, and cheerleading that effort of undermining the value of the dollar and inflating these bubbles, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, that negates the good things that he did. I'm not saying he only did bad things, but the stuff that he did is undermining his ultimate credibility and the credibility of the entire Republican Party, who's basically sold its soul now and signed on to socialism. And all we're arguing over now is the size of the bailouts. And it's not the principle. It's, you know, how much money should we be printing? How much money should we be spending? How big should the deficit be? Nobody is arguing to eliminate the deficits. Nobody is arguing to cut government spending. We all want more government spending. It's just that the Democrats want even more than the Republicans. And so this puts us in a very, very bad position uh, philosophically, I think, for uh, uh, for winning the election. So, you know, again, a lot of mixed emotions. But I'll tell you, the best speaker of the night, and there were some good ones, but I thought the best speech was by a 72-year-old Cuban-American immigrant by the name of Maximo Alvarez. Now, I had never heard of the guy, uh, but he is a typical success story, a rags-to-riches, you know, self-made guy whose father brought him to America to escape Fidel Castro in Cuba. So he comes to America. His father's got nothing. He starts from nothing. His first job, I think is his first job, is working in a gas station. And he worked at several gas stations when he was younger. And now he owns over 500 of them. His company, Sunshine Gasoline Distributors, the guy's got an estimated net worth in excess of $80 million. It is a beautiful American success story. He achieved the American dream. And the reason that he was at the convention was to warn Americans that that dream is in danger of, of, of being lost forever. And in fact, it's much harder for Americans today to do uh, what Maximo was able to do because we have more rules, regulations, and taxation. You know, I've often talked about one of the real negatives of the minimum wage is that before there was a minimum wage, a lot of young kids used to work at uh, gas stations uh, as pump jockeys, right? They would pump gasoline, but because of minimum wage, uh, they were priced out of that market and all of the uh, service stations automated and now they're self-serve. And so we don't have these jobs. But what used to happen is when kids would work filling up cars between fill-ups, you know, usually they had a mechanic there and then they would work and help the mechanic. And so they would start learning auto mechanics and eventually they may become an auto mechanic. They didn't have to go to college. They learned from an actual mechanic and, and then they may eventually own their own gas station. And then eventually a whole bunch of gas stations uh, like Maximo did. Now, Maximo actually went to college. I mean, not a fancy college, but he went to one. And uh, So I'm not really sure the whole trajectory of, uh, of his uh, success and how he came to be the, the businessman that he is. But suffice it to say, fewer people are able to live the American dream now uh, than in the past. And, and what Maximo is worried about is that even fewer people will be able to live it in the future because he is warning Americans that what he is hearing from the Democratic politicians is not new. He's heard it all before in Cuba. It is the same message of Fidel Castro. It's the same nonsense that he heard then, right? Because Fidel Castro promised all sorts of stuff Uh, to the Cuban people. Uh, But the Cubans under Castro were far worse off than they were under Batista, right? So it was a a very emotional and heartfelt speech that he delivered uh, warning to the Americans, voters. And he very much appreciates the opportunities that he had in America, the freedom that he was able to uh, utilize to achieve his success. And he wants to preserve that. He wants to preserve those freedoms. Uh, and you can see that he is very, very concerned and very worried that what may happen to America may be the same thing that happened to his homeland in Cuba. I mean, he's obviously uh, feels very badly uh, that Castro destroyed Cuba and took you know, his you know, native country and his people and just completely destroyed it. But he doesn't want the same thing happen to America. But he thinks and he's worried that the same thing will happen to America. And he is 100% right. He's 100% to be worried about it. And I think he's right because it may in fact happen. Because the American people aren't fundamentally different than the Cuban people. And they're just as likely to believe the lies of the socialists as they were. And so the Cubans got fooled by Castro, and now Americans are being fooled by a whole bunch of Democrats who aren't coming right out and and, and saying they're communists. But again, uh, Castro didn't come right out and say that. A lot of people were fooled. A lot of people in America had no idea what Cuba was going to be like under Castro. Initially, a lot of Americans thought it was a good thing that Batista was out and Castro was in. They had no idea uh, what was in store for the Cuban people. And the American people really have no idea the misery that awaits them. I mean, people think that it can't get any worse. And the Democrats are trying to say that, well, it can get worse because we may reelect Trump. Look, it's going to get worse even if we do reelect Trump, but it's going to get much worse if we don't. They have no idea just how bad things are going to get if we sign on to the same type of economic policies in America that already destroyed Cuba. Just as the first night of the Republican National Convention was getting underway, the second night of violence in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was also getting underway. This was sparked by the shooting of an apparently unarmed black man by two white police officers. The individual, 29-year-old Jacob Blake, is not dead. He is recovering from surgery. He is in serious condition in the hospital. He was shot in the back several times while he was attempting to enter his car while his three young sons were in the back seat of the car. And if you watch this video and it's there and it's very short and it's very disturbing, it looks really, really bad. I mean, it seems like there's no obvious excuse for why this suspect is being shot in the back. Now, of course, you can't see what is happening inside the car. So the only Valid explanation for this shooting, in my mind, would be if Blake was going for a gun. If he had a gun in the car and the officer observed that gun in Blake's hand and he had reason to believe that Blake was about to open fire on the officers, then shooting him would have been justified. And after he was shot, the officers did attempt to give him aid. Uh, you know, he, they, they tried to save his life. So it wasn't like they wanted to make sure he was dead after he was shot. They did try to help them. But that doesn't necessarily excuse uh, the fact that they shot him in the first place. But as bad as it looks, and again, it looks bad, you still have to wait for all the facts. We still have to find out what was actually happening behind that car door that we can't see from the video that's online. Right, but once again, the protesters, uh, the rioters, they're not waiting for all the evidence before they try and convict these cops of murder. They've already taken uh, their vengeance to the streets. Right, they're already out there rioting because of what appears to be another uh, racially motivated shooting of an unarmed black man. It's not murder yet because he's not dead, and hopefully he'll survive. Uh, But then, of course, even if he lives, you can claim it is attempted murder. But, you know, there is no better example of why you can't rush to judgment based on partial information, right? When you have some of the facts, but not the proper context to understand those facts, you have to wait until all the evidence comes out. And the best example is the George Floyd case, because about a week or two ago, We finally got the video footage from the body cams of three of the four officers, former officers, who have now been charged in the case. One uh, with second degree murder, and the others are accomplices to second degree murder. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the actual most outrageous part of the body cam video is the media's coverage of the release of the video or their lack of coverage. Because almost everything I read or saw about this footage was that the footage confirmed uh, the guilt of the officers and ratified or validated the narrative of racist cops murdering George Floyd. Not only did the video not do this, it actually provided pretty conclusive evidence of the opposite. It basically blows apart The narrative, remember the narrative here that sparked all the riots and the Black Lives Matter protests is that these racist white cops, even though one of them was black and one was Asian, murdered George Floyd because he was black. And that this murder merely confirmed the systemic racism, right? That we've always known was there and this just exposed it put it out in the open, and now we need an immediate policy response, right? We need uh, action to reduce the wealth inequality that is the result of systemic racism that was now on full display with the murder of George Floyd. Except here are the two things that I think you can conclusively conclude once you watch the body cam. And again, don't accept my word for it. Watch it for yourself. Because after all, that's what the jury is going to do. So watch it and then come to your own conclusions. But here are the two conclusions that I came to. The first one is that there's absolutely nothing about the George Floyd incident that is racial, meaning that the officers were not motivated by George Floyd's race. I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that they would have acted any differently had the circumstances been identical, but George Floyd been white. In fact, not only is there no racial slurs, right, spoken by any of these officers at any time on any of these videos, but nobody even mentions George Floyd's race. It doesn't even come up. They don't even say black man. So I don't know how you can conclude that something is racially motivated when the individual's race never even comes up in conversation uh, at any point during the video. So that's number one, that it's not racial. But number two, what's even more important is in my mind, the uh, videos show that none of these four policemen intended to kill George Floyd. And that includes Chauvin, the guy who held his knee on Floyd's neck, right, for nine minutes. The video does not show that Chauvin intended to kill Floyd. Even if he did, it was not intentional. And intent is a crucial element necessary to get a conviction of second degree murder. And if Chauvin did not intend to kill Floyd, then he did not commit second-degree murder, and then the other officers cannot be accomplices to a murder that didn't take place. Now, I know just about everyone was rightly outraged, right, when they saw the cell phone video, which clearly shows Chauvin, right, he's kneeling on the neck of George Floyd. He is ignoring George Floyd's repeated pleas that he cannot breathe, right? And Chauvin keeps his knee on his neck, even though he's saying he can't breathe, And then even after Floyd becomes non-responsive, Chauvin just leaves his knee on Floyd's neck. So if you just look at that, it looks like Chauvin has deliberately murdered Floyd in plain view of multiple witnesses and knowing that the murder is being captured on video. Now, it doesn't make sense that with all these witnesses and video evidence that he would do that, but people jump to that conclusion just based on how bad it looked. But once you actually see what transpired before the cell phone video starts, then you have the entire thing in its proper context. Then you understand what happened, and more importantly, why the police, including Chavin, acted the way they did. If you go back to the very beginning when Floyd first encountered the police, his behavior was erratic. And in fact, it even got more erratic as the encounter progressed. The entire time, right, Floyd is resisting arrest. But if you actually look at what he's saying and doing, I don't even think that Floyd realizes that he's resisting arrest. I mean, he thinks he's cooperating, but the police keep reminding him that he's resisting. And when you watch it, it's clear that he's resisting, but it's also kind of clear that he doesn't realize it. And, you know, you really can't help but feel sorry for George Floyd in this situation. I mean, especially knowing the final outcome, but even forgetting about the fact that he died. I mean, you can see that he doesn't realize what he's doing. And at the same time, he is complaining about all sorts of problems. He's telling the officers, and this is early on, Right? that his stomach hurts, that his neck hurts, that everything hurts. Right, He's in pain everywhere. Right, This is long before he's on the ground with a knee on his neck. He's complaining. One of the officers actually observes that he's foaming at the mouth. And the most important complaint is that Floyd says he can't breathe. He's having trouble breathing. In fact, I think he complained to the officers that he could not breathe Six times before he ended up on the ground with a knee on his neck. And in fact, the police, they originally struggled to get Floyd to sit in the back seat of the squad car. That's where they wanted him. But as they were trying to push him in there, and even after he got in there, he was complaining that he was claustrophobic, but he was also complaining that he could not breathe. He told the officers while he was sitting in the back of the squad car with no, uh, you know, officer's body parts on his neck, right? He said he could not breathe. And he also mentioned that one of the reasons he couldn't breathe was because he had just gotten over COVID. Anyway, he ended up pushing his way out of the squad car. He, He left from the opposite side that he entered from. And after he gets out of the squad car... He again complains to the police while he's standing up that he can't breathe. And he actually asked the police officers to put him on the ground because he could not breathe. He wanted to be on the ground. Now, you might think, okay, well, he wanted to be on the ground, but that's no excuse for Chauvin to have put his knee on his neck until you actually look. At the Minneapolis police training materials, which the uh, you know the defense team has pointed out, actually contains a description, including a photo of how to deal with an uncooperative suspect who's in handcuffs. And if you look at the picture, you'll see the suspect lying face down, with his hands cuffed behind his back, and the officer kneeling on his neck. So that was the proper police procedure. Now, you can argue that the police procedure was wrong and that the chief of police should have changed it sooner, who, by the way, happens to be black, the chief of police in Minneapolis. But that is what uh, the officer was supposed to do. Now, you might think, but why would you keep your knee on somebody's neck when they're complaining they can't breathe. Well, if they were complaining that they couldn't breathe long before you put your knee on their neck, well, then maybe you would believe that the failure to breathe had nothing to do with the knee on the neck. And after all, that was the original finding of the very first autopsy that was performed on Floyd. According to that autopsy, the knee on the neck had nothing to do with Floyd's death that he did not die of asphyxiation and there were no injuries, there were no bruises on his neck. And if this is a proper police procedure, I'm sure that the officer in question was not providing enough force on Floyd's neck that would stop him from breathing. And in fact, even as he is complaining that he can't breathe, the police are reminding him that he can talk. They're saying you don't have any problem talking, therefore you must be able to breathe. And since Floyd had repeatedly claimed that he couldn't breathe even when he was seated in the police car, it makes sense that the officers did not believe that it was the knee to the neck that was responsible for his breathing problems when he had those same problems when there was no knee on his neck. So the question you might want to ask, and obviously a question that is going to be posed to the jury is if Chauvin's knee on Floyd's neck is not what killed him, if he didn't suffocate from pressure on his neck, why was he complaining that he could not breathe and why did he die? And the most obvious answer to that question, if you watch the body cam footage and you look at the, the autopsy, the conclusion is that Floyd died from a drug overdose, that he did have cardiac arrest that resulted from an overdose of drugs. Probably complicated by the stress of the arrest and resisting arrest. But if you look at it, it's quite possible that Floyd would have died of that drug overdose even had he remained in the back of the squad car where he was initially uh, placed by the police. In fact, it's very possible that he would have died at some point that day from a drug overdose, even if he never encountered the police, that the police encounter accelerated the death. But it's certainly possible that Floyd had already killed himself, that he had already consumed enough drugs to seal his own fate, regardless of any encounters that he may have had with the police. If you read the report from the police, the autopsy, Floyd had fentanyl, amphetamines, morphine, marijuana, and alcohol in his system when he died. And in fact, he had three times the lethal dosage of fentanyl in his body. In other words, he had consumed triple the amount that would kill somebody. That's how much fentanyl he had in his system. And in fact, if you read what the symptoms of a fentanyl overdose are, that's exactly what Floyd was exhibiting. You have a shutdown of your nervous system, which may explain all the pain uh, that he was experiencing, cardiac arrest, and respiratory failure. So it's probably not because he couldn't breathe because of his neck. It was the effect of the fentanyl overdose that, created the respiratory failure. And in fact, if you actually look at the the body cam footage, you can see what appears to be a white tablet in Floyd's mouth on the back of his tongue when he was arrested and that he eventually swallows during that initial encounter with the police. So it looks like he was actually doing drugs in the car just prior to his arrest. That's how much drugs this guy had in his system. That's why he was behaving the way he was. That's why he thought he was cooperating even as he was resisting. It was the drugs in his system that were responsible for that erratic behavior. And in addition to being on drugs, this guy had a lot of health issues. First of all, according to the autopsy, he had a severe heart disease, he had hypertension, and he even had COVID, right? I mean, he admitted uh, that he had just gotten over COVID. He was positive for COVID. You know, had none of this been caught on video, it's likely that George Floyd's death would have just been another COVID death, right? The police would have ignored everything else and they would have said he died of COVID-19. In my opinion, the only thing that these officers did wrong in this entire encounter is that once George Floyd became non-responsive, they didn't do anything to try to revive him, right? I mean, they had already called the ambulance, so they knew an ambulance was coming. And again, if they had intended to murder him, why would they call an ambulance? I mean, clearly they didn't. Um, But you can argue that their response to the situation, once uh, Floyd became non-responsive, was negligent, that they should have acted in a better way to potentially save Floyd's life. And whether they could have done that, we have no idea. I mean, he may have had so much drugs in his system that there's nothing the officers could have done, right? His fate may have already been sealed, but we'll never know because they didn't really do anything except waiting for the paramedics, and in fact, even after the paramedics got there, you can see in the footage because you know you've got the body cam footage from the officer who got into the ambulance with Floyd and who tried to help revive Floyd with CPR. But it seems like they waited an awful long time; at least a minute seemed to go by before they did anything in the back of the ambulance. Now, maybe had they acted sooner, maybe his death could have been avoided. I mean, we'll never know, right? Uh, But that's not murder, right? At best, it's manslaughter, but even that would be a stretch. And this is the problem here because the officers have already been overcharged. What are we going to do now? What is the Minneapolis Police Department going to do now? Because if they were honest based on this exculpatory evidence right which they actually had from the very beginning clearly they had the body cam footage i mean it was just leaked to the public but they had it the entire time right and it's exculpatory it proves that there was no murder right so at a minimum they need to drop the charges from second-degree murder to maybe manslaughter right but even that i think would be extremely difficult to prove if the officers were following the proper police procedures. Now those procedures have since been changed, but they were in effect at the time. And if the police were not given proper training on how to react to a suspect who is this high on drugs, uh, whose fault is that? Is it the officer's fault for not being properly trained or the police department's fault for having not trained them properly? But the problem that they have now is if they even drop the charges to a lower charge, that's going to you know, result in outrage, probably more riots. But what might even be a bigger riot is what if these guys are acquitted? Because based on this evidence, I don't see how any lawyer can lose this case, right? If you put uh, the officers on the stand and they testify, and I think they're all going to testify because I think their testimony will exonerate them. Um, I don't see how you get a conviction. Because remember, all they have to do, all the defense has to do is raise reasonable doubt. They don't have to prove that the police are innocent. All they have to do is raise a reasonable doubt that maybe they're not guilty. And the body cam footage does that all by itself. The autopsy does that all by itself. You put the two together And I don't see how you get a conviction here. So that means when they're acquitted, now there's going to be more riots. There's going to be more looting. You know, what the left has to do, if they really want to defuse this situation, they have to come out and admit that they were wrong, right? That they misjudged this situation. But again, they can't do that because they need this as proof of systemic racism. They built this entire movement on this lie. So now what do we have to do? I mean, do we actually have to try to find a jury that will ignore all the evidence, all the facts, and convict innocent men of murder and put them in jail just to appease a mob, just to avoid more violence and more looting? Should we ask innocent men uh, to go to jail to maintain this farce, to maintain this false narrative? I mean, do we really need more political prisoners in the United States? But- This is the predicament that we are now in. And, you know, I would suggest, again, watching the body cam footage while it's still on YouTube. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that YouTube hasn't taken it down. And my reaction is very typical. Look at the comments. I don't don't care which version of this video you watch on YouTube. You look at the comments, and 90% of the comments are, oh, my God. I had no idea. These guys aren't guilty. Even people who originally believed the narrative, once they have seen the actual evidence, they have changed their mind. And there are a lot of people who are outraged. Why wasn't this shown sooner? I mean, I I was led to believe something that wasn't true when the police had in their possession the entire time evidence of the truth. And they deliberately withheld this evidence to foster a false narrative, even as people were dying in the streets, even as more people were losing their lives, including black people were losing their lives and the police had in their possession evidence that would have put this in its proper context and maybe would have saved those lives. But the fact that they didn't want to release the footage that would have saved lives proves, right, that black lives don't matter. Only it proves it in the opposite way that uh, Black Lives Matter contends. Because it wasn't that Floyd's life didn't matter. It did matter. The police actually tried to save his life. Maybe they could have tried harder. Maybe they could have tried better. But they did try to save his life. But the lives of other black individuals who died in the streets and of white individuals those lives didn't matter at all to the police because they were willing to sacrifice those lives in order to push this false narrative to advance their socialist political agenda.